You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. Whatever doesn't kill you will eventually turn you on. I saw the tarot card of death. I think that tarot just kind of found me a solitary seeker. Very often our biological families can be the source of a lot of hurt. I spend weeks smoking weed and lying on my couch and thinking, Hello! Hello! And welcome to Pop-Tarts! Me, 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 me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is an incredible comic book artist, author, illustrator, and educator who I just became aware of this year and whose work I immediately became obsessed with. Nina Bunjevac was born in Canada, but spent her formative years in the former Yugoslavia, where she began studying art. When war broke out in the 1990s, she returned to Canada where she studied graphic design, drawing, and painting, and eventually branched out into making sculptural installations and writing and illustrating absolutely incredible books of comic art, including Heartless, Fatherland, and Bezimena. Her latest book, An Alchemical Journey Through the Major Arcana of the Tarot comes with a stunning deck of 22 illustrated cards. It makes my little woo-woo heart so happy to dig into her interpretations of this very potent symbology, and I cannot wait to talk to her more about it. Welcome, Nina Bunja, back to our show. Yay! Well, hello, and thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Now, as always, I like to start at the very beginning. Um with your early life. You grew up in the former Yugoslavia, and when war broke out in the 90s, you had to relocate to Canada. Tell me how you discovered and cultivated your talent as both an artist and a writer during such a tumultuous time. Well, to be honest with you, I don't really remember any time in my life where it wasn't obvious that art just filled my being. Um, uh, from the first drawing I did, and, and I don't know how, how, how young I was at that time, um, I always seemed to just draw and, and be attracted to art. Um, I think um, that art was a sort of escapism for me, for me uh, that it helped me um, find a space that was just mine and very private. And um, um, that continued to be source of, uh, a source of nourishment for me all throughout my life, especially those uh, tumultuous years, for sure. Can, can you tell me, what does your artistic development journey look like? What would you say is your ratio between being self-taught versus your formal education? I would probably say it's 50-50. Uh, because my art education was kind of ha- cut halfway through in Yugoslavia. Uh, by the time I left, I was in year two of an art high school. Uh, when I moved to Canada, I continued art education, but it was uh, it was extremely different than what I had been brought up with, which is like a more classical approach. 
you know, you learn to draw from uh, geometrical shapes to um, you move on to objects for a bunch of years before you touch the figure. Um, so it was very classical. Um, I basically left just as about we are to start tackling figure drawing. And in North America, I found that uh, the education was like a little bit of a mix of like there's a bit, a bit of classical, but then there was like a, um, a holistic approach um, to especially to figure drawing and to artistic expression. Um, so at that point, I think um, I became more of a self-taught person uh, simply because I could not find the courses that I needed to really develop uh, my drawing chops. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess I would say 50-50 for sure, yeah. You know, whenever I interview visual artists, I like to direct our listeners to visit their websites first to see what I'm talking about. So please, <laughs> if you're listening to this now and you have not engaged in the wonder that is Nina Bunjavac, please press pause now. Visit ninabunjavac.com and prepare for your mind to be blown. <laughs> now I'm going to assume that you've done that and you know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to proceed. Nina... <laughs> Your drawings are monochrome, black and white, and intensely detailed, just with incredible crosshatching and, and shading done with billions of stippled, sort of pointless little dots. There's something almost, to me, eerily superhuman about the way your images are constructed, but they also, they have a very vintage mid-century feel about them that evokes idealized beauty and glamour, often in contrast to very dark thematic subject matter. I just want to know, can you get wonky and granular with me for a second and tell me like, how the fuck do you make this art? Like what tools and ink do you use? How much of it is by hand? How much is digital? What products and programs do you use? Like I'm not a visual artist, so I might not follow you, but I don't understand <laughs> how it is that the things that I'm looking at are created. So if you could help me at all, I would, I'm so interested to hear it. Okay, um, so the process starts with sketching, lots of sketching um, with a pencil on paper. Um, uh, I like to draw on tracing paper because uh, I like to turn the page um, on the reverse to, to catch my mistakes. Uh, I mm -hmm. find that uh, artists, like, there's, a, there's an old trick that was used in the Renaissance where you look in the mirror um, at the drawing or you look in the mirror at the painting in order to catch um, yourself in the middle of making a mistake that, you know, it may escape your eye. Um, or, yeah. yeah. And um, I do a lot of sketching. Um, I do use the computer for editing the sketches. Uh, which means that I'll scan and I'll clean, uh, use Photoshop for that. Uh, I'll use it for resizing, for uh, basically determining the composition of the page. I then print it out, um, the sketch, or I call it a pencil. I trace it onto um, a good piece of paper, and then I use pen and ink. Uh, I use Faber-Castell ink pens, uh, which contain India ink. Uh, which doesn't change color with time. 
and I start putting down outlines and slowly go into the details. I look at tonal changes and tonal values in the drawing. I spend way too much time. Um, and I, I have to admit that the amount of work that I put in my art comes from um, having been insecure about my writing abilities. Um, because when I moved to Canada, or back to Canada, I was 16, I didn't speak the language, language very well. And it took me about 20 years to finally be able to express myself in English, uh, in the written word. So that was a little bit, um, I think that that feeling of you know, not being sure whether, you know, this is grammatically correct, is this, does it sound right? I tried to kind of um, uh, compensate with the amount of detail in my art. Um, um, because I, 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 you see, I'm very conscious of, of my output, my artistic output. Um, um, I believe in the responsibility of the imagination and and um, just acting responsibly in the world. It's like how many pieces of paper you're going to waste. Um, how many trees are going to be logged down for your book to be published. So if I'm going to have something out there, it's gonna make me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, I will not release it. And so that's probably the second reason why I put so much effort and so much detail into my work. Like, I would like to think that people will look at my art uh, after they've read the book, maybe go back to it a couple of years later and just leaf through it and enjoy the art, enjoy the detail. I mean, when I read Bezimena, I just wanted to rip every page out and stick it to my wall immediately. Like, <laughs> I think that's definitely uh, part of it. Um, if Wikipedia is to be believed, you and I are around the same age, born in the mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, but as I said before, your work is very beautiful in an idealized mid-century way that evokes an era of newsprint. I feel like I could see an image of yours anywhere and recognize it as yours. But how did you go about creating this signature style? And what is it about like our grandparents' generation that captured your visual imagination that, you, that made you want to latch onto it in that way? Honestly, I think that that comes from having grown up with black and white television set. Um, I, 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 I am inspired by film more than I am inspired by comics. Um, and I'm a big fan of noir cinema. I'm a big fan of European art cinema. And I sort of think cinematically. And for example, you mentioned Bezimena, and you can definitely see film influences in it. You can see the Catwoman, I think it was a 1943 um, film, um, where the heroine is actually a Serbian artist and she's depicted as um, somebody who turns into a wild cat and devours her lovers in, in the moment of ecstasy. Um, it's a very strange film, um, but 
there are scenes <laughs> in totally... it, like the the zoo, right? The, the zoo scene. I'm I'm like so I haven't inspired seen that, by that movie, but they definitely use that as an inspiration for this terrible horror movie, Teenage Cat Girls in Heat. It's terrible, but it's the same premise. Oh, <laughs> I have not. Se- I have not seen that. I would love to see that. Yeah, it's like there a was whole a remake of house, it in the eighties. Now there I was w- a remade a remake of Cat People with Nastasia Kinski and Malcolm McDowell in the seventies, I mm-hmm. believe. If you remember, yeah. But this was like the original film. So, so that was one of the uh, inspirations, and uh, so naturally it comes with the forties look, um, and. Uh, Dusan Makaveyev, who is who was a Yugoslavian uh, um, uh, filmmaker, director, filmmaker, um, uh, dubbed um, as um, a part of uh, Yugoslavian black wave in in filmmaking, which is like Yugoslavian neorealism uh, slash noir, but uh, set in contemporary Yugoslavia at the time. And his first films are black and white. Uh, Specifically, one film I find very inspirational, and that is, uh, it's called Love Case, um, or Love Story, or The Case of the Missing Switchboard Operator. So, Hmm. yeah. Which was filmed, like, in the 60s. So, again, black and white. So, I'm telling you, it's it's that, and it's also kind of like the... the, um, um, the underground cultures, um, culture in Europe and North America that have influenced me as well. So it's so cool. I just eat it up. I can't, I feel like your, your work is made just for me <laughs> when I, Aww. when I look at it, I love it so much. Now though, let's talk tarot. Mm-hmm. Let's get into it. Your, your most recent book, as I said, is called an alchemical journey through the major arcana of the tarot. It comes with a major arcana deck that you designed yourself, and it is a wonderfully witchy bit of business to me. (laughs) What what would you say is your relationship with witchiness and esoteric philosophy and the occult, and like what made you want to design and write about the tarot? Ooh, um, well, I have always been drawn to esoteric philosophy. But I never really bought into magic and ritual. Um, I'm more of a like symbolic and metaphorical sort of thinker. So um, I will look at the symbol and I'll try to interpret it in different ways. Um, I because of the an incident that I write about in the afterward of Bessie Mena, I've always been shy about sharing my interest in esoteric philosophy, um, I became a solitary seeker. And um, my seeking was sort of all over the place for many years. I I had the first tarot deck at the age of 19, but it was kind of like, all right, you know, do a spread. Am I going to get a boyfriend? You know, will I, you know, stuff like that. And, um, it wasn't until about eight years ago that I started seriously reading um, anything I can get my hands on regarding esoteric philosophy. I went through Uspensky and Gurdjieff and uh, Rudolf Steiner. Um, 
I started reading about the history history of esotericism. There was an excellent book that I read uh, called uh, Secret Teachers of the Western World by Gary Lockman, in which he gives an outline of the uh, history of esotericism. But also, there's something very interesting in the book that may escape the eye of, of a reader, but he kind of goes from esoteric school to another, from one teacher to another, and he looks at their attitudes towards gender and especially women. And you mm. realize that that in itself is sort of like a litmus test of, you know, bullshit or no bullshit. <laughs> Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it's kind of like, dude, like there's, this is about the feminine, this, um, this approach. So um, I started reading more and I learned about Neoplatonists, uh, like one of the, the best known um, Neoplatonist philosophers was uh, Hypatia. And um, um, Pythagoras was didn't give a shit if you were a woman or a man <laughs> or whatever, and and uh, I um, the more I started researching, I realized that esotericism was one of the few places where throughout the ages women had a place, and in North America it, be, belong, it begins with spiritual uh, spiritualism. And uh, once Madame Blavatsky arrives into North America with her theosophy, like she just changes. Yeah, she blew that shit wide open. Oh, (laughs) man. She just blew it right open. And. um, so, but but the tarot. So so that's generally my interest. It's it's an ongoing interest. And um, um, uh, it basically um, got me to rethink tarot. Um, and while I was in France in 2018, I was doing an artist residence for about a year. Um, I was working on an illustration gig, uh, and one of the components of the illustration was the Green Reaper. I gave the publisher two options. One of them was like the hooded figure, another one was like um, a skeleton, just a skeleton. Uh, the skeleton one was rejected. Um, and then the whole project, it did not happen. It just like went to shit, but I didn't really care. I was, I, I was like, oh, whatever. I was actually really happy that the skeleton drawing was not picked because when I finished drawing it in my head, I saw the tarot card of death. And I just basically sat down and I started drawing around it. And one thing led to next. And I just started drawing the entire major arcana without really expecting. Because uh, the project I was supposed to work on in France was something completely different. Uh, but I think that Tarot just kind of found awesome. me. Yeah. And to and and from then on, I became um, a big fan of um, Jungian ideas and uh, Joseph Campbell, and uh, um, and I started kind of looking at um, esot- um, esotericism as a 
the way inward, the way of knowing yourself, the way that points towards finding divinity within yourself and that Jungian or dream analysis is actually a practical application of mm -hmm. this ancient ancient philosophy because uh, most of the ideas that Jung is known for comes from his interest in alchemy. So, mm, mm -hmm. so my tarot deck is not really, oh, I'll tell you the future. It's more of a um, kind of like an aid for introspection, for going within and mm -hmm. for meditation. Yeah. Absolutely. I will just interject here and say that based on your answer to that question, I feel very certain that we should be friends. So I'm just <laughs> going to put that out there and you can do with that what you will. <laughs> I, I also um, am just selfishly wondering if there will ever be a complete major and minor arcana deck. Like I want the Bunjavakian swords. I want the Bunjavakian cups. I want the wands. Like just selfishly, is that ever going to happen? Because I really want it very badly. That is definitely going to happen. I'm yes. not sure when. <laughs> I'm not sure when because I, I do have one project that I'm finishing and then I have another project that I've been hired to do um, uh, for 50 pages. I do want to do the whole uh, deck, but um, there's a difference between major and minor arcana because mm -hmm. once you get into the minor arcana, you're looking at a completely different animal. Um, you have to really delve down into uh, numerology, into um, right. Pythagorean ideas, into... Um, uh, Maybe a little Kabbalistic yeah. weirdness. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's going to definitely happen because I really want to do that. And um, um, I, I also, I think that there's a need out there for something that is connected to the tarot that's not all about, am I going to find a boyfriend slash girlfriend? Right. If you know what I mean, and something that I do know yeah, what you mean. yeah 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 because totally. like something something that will guide young women towards being solitary seekers and fully realizing themselves um, before you know tackling other things mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or whatever. Um, so, yeah. And not just young women either. Some of us are still trying to figure out how to be solitary seekers. <laughs> so it's helpful no matter how old you are. I, yeah, I agree with that. Especially now during the pandemic, I think that uh, a lot yeah. of us felt the solitude, the solitude excruciatingly painful and felt the need for group experience. I know I have, um, but I found it with Jungians. So, <laughs> you know, like I, I went to this, um, um, it's called um, the Salome Institute for Jung Jungian Studies. Um, it's a place founded by um, psychotherapists, Jungian-based psychotherapist Satya um, doyle Bayok. And um, it's basically a place where um, people can get together and um, 
attend um, seminars and courses um, and feel sane and non-judged. Um, and it's one of the few places that I found that offers that for sure. Amazing. In, in the introduction to the tarot book, you write, some readers may be familiar with the terms soul group or soul family, which are referenced throughout this book. Loosely defined, they refer to a group whose members feel a strong karmic connection to one another and whose members have nurtured and contributed to each other's spiritual and emotional growth. Members of soul groups can be found among family members, friends, colleagues, and even strangers. Soul groups do not stay fixed, but grow and evolve over long periods of time, as do the individuals within them. Ultimately, one's soul family is the external manifestation of one's inner life, and as such, should be subjected to periodic examination. I read that. I immediately <laughs> thought of Callie. Callie is one, a member of my soul family so and has been for a long time. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell me anything about your own soul group and how did you identify them as such? Um, uh, I identify them by the educational role they played in my life. I love that. I think that my grandmother was definitely a member of my soul group. I think that my stepfather is a member of my soul group. Um, I have several really close friends, um, one in particular that I've known since both of our children, who are now 24, were in kindergarten. And uh, we have always been there um, for each other to lean on. But it's not a bullshit sort of a, a relationship where you tell each other what you want to hear or what mm. the other person wants to hear. Like there's that, there's an element of if I'm going to uh, encourage your growth, sometimes I need to tell you things that you don't want to hear. And you need those people in your life to tell you, hey, uh, you know, like nicely, but you know, your, your soul group will also help you know yourself, right? So I would say that um, there, but it's also felt, it's also felt. And I think that it's also shared passion. So you and Callie have started projects out of mutual passion and, but there was probably more there. There was a feeling mm-hmm. that, hey, we're on the same page. We know each other, right? And um, um, I would say, I also wanted to encourage people to form or think about forming these soul groups because it's not spoken of so much, but very often our biological families can be the source of a lot of hurt. And um, we really do need uh, a sort of like a support outside of our families, outside of our tribes and nations or whatever that um, are there to see us the way that we really are and hear us. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I was over, I'm moving from New York in maybe June, and I was over at my friend's house, the chicken hut that I used to live at. And I was totally like 
thinking about the soul group and how those friends raised me and just like being in that building had raised me through my whole 20s. Very soul group vibe right then. Oh, yeah. 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 I get verklempt just thinking about it. <laughs> you know, we, we've talked a lot about your art so far, but your writing is equally impressive and immersive and and so incredibly absorbing. And it's important to note that you both write and illustrate all of your books. So to, to buy a Nina Bunjavak book is to just get like the, the whole experience. Does your writing inform your drawing or does the drawing inform your writing? I'd love to know which one leads and, and uh, are you illustrating a, a story that you've written or are you writing something that you want to illustrate? Mm, that's an excellent question. Uh, because it, I would say 50-50 again. Um, huh, interesting. Yeah, yeah um, I was listening to your interview with Julia Cameron the other day. You were talking about the creative process, and um, that's something that the, the Jungians would refer to as um, what, what you were, what she was describing as a process of active imagination. So... Whatever facilitates that, that's kind of like a Jungian golden egg. Like, a, like what is active imagination? Because Jung was like so elusive about what it was exactly that he was doing when he was creating his red book. Um, and I think the consensus is you sit in a quiet place, um, you still your mind, and then you wait for the first thought to emerge. And instead of allowing other thoughts, you just kind of follow that very mm. thought. So I assume, I assume that he did automatic writing. Oh yeah. Um, I do something that is sort of like automatic drawing. Mm. Um, but even before I start either drawing, or illustrating. I spend weeks smoking weed and lying on my couch and thinking. <laughs> now I think we should be best friends. <laughs> I, I I think so. I think like we're a soul group. <laughs> right? We can sit on the couch, smoke weed and, and do and automatic. Do, look at tarot cards. I'm into it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, totally. Next time I'm in New York. All of it. Um, uh, yeah, so I will do automatic drawing. Uh, once I, an idea comes to me, I, I kind of like go fishing for ideas. Um, and it usually comes after a period of binging on books or binging on podcasts or documentaries or something like that. And, and I, I think the, the key is to access that imaginal space. So whatever mm -hmm. works, um, sometimes it's just waiting for that idea. And when the idea comes, you're like, oh, you start crying and it's really intense. And, and, then, um, and then what I basically do is I juggle the work with my right brain and I do some automatic writing, drawing. I do a few pages and then I switch to left brain to do the editing. Oh. Um, so it's kind of like, I have a little editor on my left side, on my left shoulder, and I have <laughs> like a beatnik, you know, pot smoker on the right shoulder. <laughs> and then the two of them are like, you know, wait, 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 uh, you know, trying to I balance each other. Yeah. So that's it. All right. Now, now I have to talk to you 
about your incredible 2019 graphic novel, Benzimena, Bezimena, because I just read it a few months ago and I became, as I said before, very deeply obsessed with it. So like prepare for oversharing. I'm about to, it's coming <laughs> your way. Um, I, I first, I first heard about Bezimena from my friend and my friend told me that it was one of the most challenging comics he had ever encountered. Uh, now, I don't want to spoil anything for people who should listen to me and go out and read it, but I do think for content warning purposes, it is important for me to say broadly that the book is a dark, mythic fairy tale told from the perspective of a sexual predator. I think that's important to say. Um, that being said, my friend seemed very troubled by the fact that the book makes the reader sympathetic towards this main character in a way that feels complicit. I definitely felt that way as well. I understood that as well. Um, but many of the illustrations are incredibly fetishy and kinky and hot and beautiful. And the revelations around what the main character is actually up to don't really come until later in the narrative. So even though I was definitely feeling this mounting sense of dread and unease when I was reading it for the first time. I also allowed myself to get very turned on and worked up by the main character's fantasy life that was being very expertly described by your illustrations. I got to the pivotal scene in which reality just came crashing in on the fantasy world that you had created. And it was just like a bucket of ice water got dumped on my lady boner. It was like a, it was just like a physical experience. It was very shocking. But as soon as I finished the story, I just started the whole book over again. So I could take that weird taboo ride all over again. So at, at this point, I want to make it clear that I am not advocating sexual predation or making excuses for sex offenders. But the book did make me think about something that I'm friends with a comic book artist. Her name is Erica Lopez. I've been friends with her since I was in my 20s. And she once told me, whatever doesn't kill you will eventually turn you on. <laughs> and, <laughs> she, no. and I didn't understand it then, but no. I, I understand it much better now that I'm in my 40s. Not, <laughs> I didn't understand it quite when I was in my 20s. But like most- I'm not going to say she's wrong. She's not wrong. So like most women that I know, I've been sexually assaulted and that assault became part of my sexual psychology. So I'm not surprised that your book got me all overstimulated, but I am curious about your intent. How was I supposed to feel <laughs> reading Bethlehem? And have you heard reactions similar to mine or am I just like a total horny freak show? Like, tell me how to feel, <laughs> Nina Bunjavak. Oh, oh, that's so funny. I will tell you one thing which I found very odd, and that is the only negative feedback I got uh, from people who felt like they were set up um, by the book came from men. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Not from women. I think women are like, uh, yep. Yeah. That's reality. <laughs> That's reality, right? Like, um, and, um, yeah, and, and, yeah, and um, 
And also, Emily, like, thank you so much for sharing that, um, your personal <laughs> experience. I really, I, I really, really appreciate that and, and your honesty about how the book affected you. And I have nothing against that. And, and I, think it's, uh, I think it's quite natural that that becomes a part of our sexuality. Our experiences do shape us. And uh, there's all sorts of people who are turned on to uh, turn on by all sorts of things. Um, and I think it's it's quite obviously in the book that uh, that it is the vision what what the reader shares is the vision of the sexual perpetrator who sees that as something sexy, something you know, uh, completely normal, but does not really see what actually does happen or the truth of it. And um, I think we find a lot of that in pornography as well. Um, um, although I could I could talk about pornography for hours because you can also, you know, Jungians, Jungians would look for, you know, divine feminine in photography, in, in, in pornography. So, um, um, anyway, um, yeah, I, my, my aim was to challenge pornography, exploitative pornography, and to challenge particularly men as readers. So that, if I'm going to be completely honest, I wanted to show how easy it is to be swayed into this fantasy world of, oh, everything is consensual, sure, right? Like, mm, <laughs> yeah. uh, is it really? I don't know. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a mixed bag of beans, I would guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So would you say that it was? It seems like an overtly feminist gesture to put it out into the world. Do you see it that way? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, when I was finishing Bezimena, the Me Too movement had just started. And at that point, I did not even think of writing an afterword and sharing the story that I did share in the afterword, which is about my own past and uh, sexual assaults. And um, so at, at this point, I realized that what I was actually doing and questioning in a book was kind of happening globally because Hollywood just fucking exploded with this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what really did happen to all these women stars and how did they really, you know, how was their experience um, getting to that place? Um, it was over overwhelming. Like I've always been aware that there's such high numbers of women who have been sexually assaulted, and it's always kind of been the taboo. Um, and um, for me, the beginning of the Me Too movement, the fact that it came from Hollywood, from Tinseltown, from a place that kind of defines our culture. North American culture, it was very important. And I, I decided to share the personal story and to, because I realized that the, my personal story did inform the book. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I was so afraid of sharing my personal stories, 
um, as in a narrative, I decided to do something like a symbolic, uh, mythological look, um, kind of like Jean Cocteau's Orpheus trilogy, but, uh, you know, in comics. It's sort but, of a yeah. subversion of, of porn. It was reminding me of, I used to have a feminist porn. This was back in the early 2000s. And it was, we were trying to flip, you know, the gaze the male gaze. And there was a, um, we did this shoot that was called ghosting Pac-Man because I wanted to find the most fucked up thing that was on urban dictionary and twist it and ghosting. Not when, like when you just stop talking to somebody ghosting on urban dictionary is when you're having sex with some, a girl in front of a window and then you pull out and your friend starts fucking his friend will fuck you and the dude runs around and smashes his face against the window so you think you're getting fucked by a ghost what (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a comic so we built giant pac-man heads and got these two girls that had similar tattoos and we did this whole like bed prop set with a fake window and set it up so the two girls were Switching it around on the guy. Oh <laughs> my god, that's hilarious! Can you it does sound like a comic too. That's so weird. Can you believe that was a thing? The Pac-Man uh, has yeah. <laughs> this totally sounds like something that would be in Tits and Clits, uh, which was like a feminist comic uh, publication. Mm-hmm. Like totally, like yeah, yeah, like, or, or yeah. something. Literally, yeah, yeah. Who would just be like, oh, this must be a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, women were we're so we just immediately go right to ghost. Just immediately. Right to ghost. <laughs> well, this seems like the best possible time to ask you directly and definitively, Nina Bunjavak, are you a feminist? Fuck yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I have to say that it, it, having come from a, an extremely patriarchal society, and it, it took a lot of work to get there. Uh, I remember be saying, uh, you know, no, no, I'm, I'm a humanist, you know? Yeah. And, and, and now I'm like, oh, fuck, what an idiotic thing to say. Um, <laughs> I really, I, 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 now I am a feminist with my entire being and my heart and everything because it Love took to a long it. time to get there. Yeah. Congratulations. Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> this is my final question. It's the last question that we ask all of our guests on this show. And that question is, what you watching? It is a broad pop cultural question. I'm talking about books and movies and television and podcasts and music and music videos. If you are consuming it pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Nina Bunjavec, <laughs> what you watching? Hmm. Okay. I am super crazy about Turkish stuff on Netflix. Don't ask me why. Um, I love Turkish films. They're total melodramas and... Uh, but okay, I because I am going through the inking stage of the process of the book, 
what I am doing now uh, is I listen to a lot of podcasts, and my favorite podcast is This Jungian Life. It is the best podcast ever. Um, I have been watching a lot of British TV. I'm a big fan of British TV because I find that that um, they just represent all sorts of faces and looks. Uh, not like it's not like kind of like you know just uh, symmetrical faces and uh, babes. Um, <laughs> and I find that the quality of acting is much better. But I do have Netflix again, not just for Turkish TV. I have recently watched. Um, finding Figaro, and I know that you you have oh, you had the recent interview uh, with a star, and I have to say that that hit every sweet spot. That was like a rom com. <laughs> that was so amazing that I just found myself with this big grin on my face. I was just like smiling, and it was. It was amazing. I, I love that. I don't really see much of that in North American um, productions, unfortunately. Um, something where a woman walks away from a hot millionaire boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And she's like, eh. to follow her dream. Right? Exactly. That's how it should be. Yeah, and she goes for this like nerdy opera singer. Um, I'll step right over a dick. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah, so I've been like doing that, and uh, um, yeah, like I'm all over the place. But I'm I'm rewatching again uh, the British sitcom from the '80s called Allo Allo. Uh, which is one of my all-time favorites. I watched it as a kid, as a teen, and I loved it. I tend to do a lot of binge-watching of British TV, crime dramas, and, you know, then the, um, stuff like Doc Martin. On the feminist porn tip, you should check out Minx. It's about, like, a 70s feminist porn magazine. What channel is that on? Is it? It's on HBO, HBO. Max. Minx, okay. Yeah, okay, I'll check that out for bit. sure. Mm-hmm. Nina, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is such a rare delight to get like <laughs> completely absorbed in a work of art slash literature and then to get to actually talk to the creator about it is one of the like true perks and joys of my job. I'm so I'm so thrilled and excited that you were willing to come on the show and talk to me about it. You're just oh, the coolest. Oh, please. Like when I heard that, when you approached me for an interview, I was like, uh, bust. Because I come from the underground. I've heard about you when you were starting with your photocopier, oh, right? And, <laughs> and I'm like, bust. They're like the coolest coolest women ever so i'm i'm really honored to be here and to have met you both and of course i i totally think we're going to be besties yes you are at our table i agree <laughs> when I'll, you come uh, to new york please let us know sit with I us. <laughs> totally will i totally will it's a promise i love amazing. it amazing we're we're gonna take the briefest of breaks and when we come back i'm gonna ask callie and callie you are going to ask me what, what you're watching, watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project, 
and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via WolfieVibesPublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We docket. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound... Callie, we just talked to Nina Bunjavac. I feel like I want to be friends with her for the rest of my life. I feel like best friending is happening. I love when best friending is happening. She was so awesome. She's like on both of our vibes. And I love that she smokes the weeds. (laughs) She wants to smoke weed and draw, which is sounds like a good idea to me. Welcome to the club. Callie, now's the time in the program where I ask you because I want to know and I got to know and I need to know. Callie Watts, what you watching? Well, um, Atlanta is back. Have you, it's back. Have you been watching it? Not yet. Oh, my God, dude. Well, of course, it's awesome. Um, there is an episode where, you know, sometimes they'll, like, divert from the characters and do, like, a totally off-spin episode. Yeah. So this was one when there was like completely different people. And at first I was like, am I watching Atlanta? What? Did I click the wrong thing? And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's definitely Atlanta because it was about like um, how like there was black people were able to get reparations from 
uh, people that had owed the whose family owned their relatives as slaves. And so, you know, it's all about like what would happen if reparations were just like for through individuals to individuals. And it was fucking awesome. And there was one part of this guy's, oh, he's a white guy who's, uh, who owned reparations to this woman that kept showing up with like a bullhorn. And she was like, you owe me money. And then he was getting separated from his wife, I think, or something. And he shows up with the kids and she was like, oh no, I'm not dealing with you. I'm Peruvian. And he was like, you were white yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a wild episode. I've, that show is genius. A, a show that is not genius is Riverdale. Um, whoa, Jump oh, in the Shark. I didn't even know it was still on. <laughs> Jump in the Shark and riding on it. Um, they have superpowers now. A ghost hmm. of an ancestor has taken over Cheryl. It's giving me very days of our lives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like when Deirdre Hall turned into a, a possessed panther. I remember that. Yeah, they're that. like two steps away, dude. Riverdale is gone. It's gone. It's just gone. Gone wild. Riverdale gone wild. I I still keep up because I feel like I've been there watching it for so long, but I'm like, what the fuck is even happening and why? It's going to get weirder, I think. And maybe the weirder it gets, the better it'll get, but it's not so much a teen comedy anymore, a drama dramedy as it is like just batshit crazy. <laughs> and then um, I'm obsessed with Mark Reblett. I think that's how you say his name. The Instagram guy that's like the the loop the loop man. And he has this song that everybody's sharing on Instagram and Twitter, the React videos, where it's like, if you don't show up, it ain't getting done. You got to show up if you want to get it done. And if you want to get it done, you got to show up. It's so fucking good. I want him to be. Yeah, I watched that because you sent it. I got all motivated. Right? I've been listening to it every morning and every night when I pack because I'm like, let me get that inspo. Because, like, that's true. If you don't show up, it ain't getting done. And then I've been into a little cooking zone. Julia on HBO. You watching that one yet? About Not Julia yet. Do you like child. it? Oh, my God. I fucking love it. I wonder if they're going to talk about her being a spy. I hope so. Because it takes off with her with the show. And she was a spy before the show, right? Yeah. Well, I forgot. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to watch the show to, to remind myself. I'll have to watch the movie, I guess, to, to, or I could just Google it. <laughs> but I hope they talk about her being a spy. But there's this British actress, Sarah Lanchester, Lanchashire, and she's just amazing as Julia. I'm loving it. And it's really interesting how they talk about, like, because it was the first cooking show, like, how they were figuring out how to get the angles and put the, the cameras and... And how to not make the food look gross. Right. And then, like, you know, all the dudes are like, nobody's going to want to watch a cooking show. And this one guy was, like, trying to, like, he was like, it's never going to happen. And then the the dude that owned the company was like, I, I actually love it. And my mom, my wife made a dish and, you know... It was spectacular. And so, like, of course, people are like, nobody wants to watch women do do housework or, like, home things. But people do. And people love it. Cook, 
cooking mm-hmm. shows all day. And speaking of that, I've also been therapeutically watching Selena and Chef because it's so relaxing and so chill and cute. Oh, it's it's like her and her friends and her grandparents, and she doesn't know how to cook, and so she. I think I may have talked about this before for the last season, but um, she has chefs come on um, via Zoom because it was like started in the pandemic, and they teach her to cook from their home kitchen, and it's so cute. And what is also so cute is this guy, Gabe Kennedy, this hotty body chef. Well, he just has maybe really hot hair. And he's <laughs> he's on the one episode and, like, he's just fucking smoking hot, dude. And then I looked him up and then, of course, he's, a, like, a weed chef. So oh. he just, like, multiplied his hotness for me. <laughs> And Patty Malachmi was on. I love her. It's just the cutest show, and it's like oh, Padma Lakshmi? yeah. And so it's basically like someone that has no idea how to cook, and then great chefs teaching them how to cook like their favorite things, and it it's so cute. I love, it. and that's what I've been watching. What have you been watching? Thank you so much for asking. Um, I believe on your recommendation, and also on our film writer and editor Jenny Miller's recommendation, I watched the first episode of Our Flag Means Death <laughs> on HBO Max. When I watched the first episode, um, I, had, and, I had it on in the background, and I was like, oh, this shit's dumb, because I wasn't paying attention, you know? And then I watched the... I thought it was really funny. When I got to the... I stopped working when I got to the Leslie Jones episode, and I was like, oh, I should pay attention now. And I was like, oh, this is actually hilarious. And then I went back and rewatched the other episode. Yeah, so I watched Our Flag Means Death. Um, Taika Watiti is in it and um, has a hand in it, and it totally reminds me of What We Do in the Shadows but with Pirates. Yes. It has the same kind of vibe, and I enjoy it very much. Um, then I took a deep dive into the yellow wallpaper. I saw that there was a film adaptation of the short story Yellow Wallpaper, and so I took a moment to reread the short story in anticipation of the film. For anybody who is not familiar, The Yellow Wallpaper is a short story by an early feminist writer named Charlotte Perkins Gilman that was published in 1892. And it's very gothic and fucked up. And it's about a woman whose husband is a doctor and is basically like making her stay in this bedroom in a vacation house because she is like female hysteria. And so like she's in this room female with yellow hysteria. wallpaper slowly going crazy. What is female hysteria? What? What is female hysteria? Like f- female hysteria was like in the 1800s what they called like women who were like depressed or anxious or in any way fucked up. Uh, so I am currently female hysteria. You are currently... Girl, we are all (laughs) experiencing female hysteria right now. Yeah. She was like, you know, it was basically just a way of like getting unruly women into psychiatric hospitals when you didn't want to deal with them anymore. That's just the label that was put on Mm -hmm. them. So this short story is about a woman whose husband just sort of like takes away all of her autonomy and makes her stay in this room until with the yellow wallpaper on it until she loses her fucking mind. Um, so I, I, um, 
have known about the story for a long time. I enjoy the story. I connect to the story. I reread it. It was just as good as I remember. And then I watched the new, brand new film adaptation of The Yellow Wallpaper. It was directed by an individual named Kay Pontuti, and it came out March 29th. And I wish that I could say that it was good, but I can't. It was very weird and awkward, not in a good way. But I did want to watch it until the very end to see what happened. I found it moderately creepy and gothic. The, the problem that I had with it is that, like, often, like, say you turn a novel into a film, you have to cut a lot out of it right. to, like, make it fit into the time of a film. But this had the opposite problem because they made a whole film out of a short story, and the short story basically takes place with, like, one woman sitting alone in a room, mm-hmm. which doesn't make a good movie. <laughs> so they added a lot of weird extraneous shit that I didn't like. Mm. Mm. Um. And then the other thing that I've been watching is actually something that I've been reading. Um, a friend of mine, like I, I, I know I'm in the minority when it comes to the human race, but I actually like poetry. I like reading it. <laughs> and a friend of mine recommended that I read Frank O'Hara, who's a poet that I've heard of, um, who's a very prominent poet that I've heard of, but had never read before. Um, he was a former curator at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York, and he became prominent in... Um, what's known as the New York School of artists and writers and musicians who like drew inspiration from the jazz age and were working in the 60s. Um, he, he did this thing where for years he would be curating at the MoMA and then he would take a lunch break and he would walk around New York City and he would write a poem during his lunch break. And those poems were collected um, in a in a edition called Lunch Poems that was published in 1964 by Lawrence Ferlinghetti with his uh, City Lights imprint. Um, And so I've been reading Lunch Poems, and it it makes me want to take a lunch break and write poems too, except for the fact that to do that, I would need to take a lunch break, which I never do. So step one. Take a lunch break, girl. Take a lunch break. Step two, write poems during your lunch break. I just find it they're, they're beautiful and they're magical and they're about New York and, and they're inspiring and they make me want to want to write just by reading them. I love that. So I recommend uh, Lunch Poems by Frank O'Hara. And of course, the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. You know, we really need everyone's help in this within the sound of my voice to help keep Bust alive. Um, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Mm-hmm. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 126 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including our amazing episode with Big Frida and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. Finally, I would also like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. We caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. You cannot find Callie on social media, so don't even try, right? No, 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 no. You can, however, email us both. I'm at Emily Rems at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at Bust.com slash Pop Tarts. 
And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Hi, Logan. I haven't talked to Logan in a few days. Oh, hey, Logan. So I can say it here. Hey, Logan. How you doing? What's up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Are we done? Are you ready to go live the rest of your life? Uh, yeah, I got to walk to the bank.